Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Anya Alvarez here, producer of Off the Looking Glass, and it's getting crunch time. I'm two weeks away from my qualifier for the U.S. Open, and I forgot what it was like to have to be mentally tough on the course and have to bounce back from bad shots. As of late, over the last few years when I've played since I stopped playing professionally, I am playing for fun. Sometimes I may have a couple of drinks on the course and try to let a little loose. Now, in this training mindset, if I make a bogey, I'm like, oh no, I got to make a birdie now. I got to bounce back. So getting into that bounce back mentality and learning how to use that competitive, fiery spirit again to not want to lose, to do anything to not lose. So I've learned that I am not as uh, competitive as I once was. So I'm having to channel, channel that inner competitor all over again. And hopefully in a couple weeks, I will be standing on top of a podium with a win in hand because I believed I was a champion before I stepped out onto the course. They don't really have podiums at these qualifiers. See you next week. Welcome to Off the Looking Glass. I'm Kate Fagan. I'm Jessica Smetana. It is creeping up on this U.S. Open qualifier for our girl Anya. Kate, I'm getting nervous. I'm starting to get yes. nervous for her on her behalf. And I understand what she's saying here, which is it gets harder and harder to mentally bounce back and harder and harder to figure out how, like if you haven't been a professional for a while, like to take it so seriously that you got to lock in. Like that is a difficult part of being a professional athlete. Did you have any sort of techniques that you employed when you had like a bad game or missed a shot that you were really frustrated with afterwards to try to like get your head back in it when you played basketball, Kate? Yeah, like kicking chairs and stuff like that. <laughs> Did you do anything just generally to, you know, get let the frustration out? Did you uh, did you hit any clipboards? I don't know. In fairness to Anya and golf itself, like Basketball is a sport where, like, you can't get caught up too much in your mistakes. Get over it! Get over it! Because it's just like you are on the move. There's another play a second later. I certainly have thrown many a basketball at somebody slash my dad and or against the wall when practicing. But golf is such a different beast, I imagine. One of the reasons why I am scared of it. Like, I'm scared of tennis. Like, 
that is a you are just playing inside your own mind and that seems dangerous yeah it's a solo yeah. sport exactly i i think sometimes after i've baked something that didn't turn out the way that i liked Ugh, the shame and, and disappointment i feel or i just want to take it and throw it all in the trash and yes. i don't know we've all probably played putt putt or mini golf or regular golf with someone that mm -hmm has a bad shot and then throws their club somewhere and then it embarrasses all of us. So I agree with you. There is a special kind of golf mental frustration that a lot of other sports don't have the same level of. Yes. So the qualifier is May 17th. It's not being broadcast on TV, but you and I will be tweeting about it and yeah, we will be definitely. following her very closely. Have we considered that if she does qualify and then like has the round of her life at the US Open and then she decides to be a professional golfer again and then we lose our producer? I'm not gonna work here at this address, so I'm gonna like do a different place that I'm gonna do the work from that's different work. <gasps> I honestly think she wouldn't stop working with Off the Looking Glass, even if she won the US Open. I think she'd be like, you know what, this is just, this is this too important podcast to me. Is, it's, I just love it so much. All right. Well, I'll I'm keep glad doing it. then you have considered it <laughs> and it's not going to happen. So good luck, Anya, but we still need you. <laughs> and on today's show, this is exciting for me. We are doing a little bit of a Kentucky Derby episode. Yeah. And I'm thrilled. I found something out while we recorded this episode, which is that you were a bit of a horse girl growing up, Kate. As much as you can be a horse girl without ever getting on one, that was me. <laughs> that was me. You were I watched a, a horse girl from afar. I bet on them. I thought they were pretty. I stayed away from them when I saw them walking back to my car at Saratoga because mm. they're just, they're big and you never they know are. what they're going to do. They are scary. But I loved horse racing growing up. So this is an exciting episode and we have <gasps> Julie Crone on the episode. She is the only woman to win a triple crown race. She has over $90 million of purse earnings, which we kind of get into that breakdown. Too much math, yeah. Yeah, too much math. 10% of 60%, we won't even, we won't even <laughs> if go you, there. If you don't like math, stop the episode now. And then Anya, not just she's not just at the top of the show, but she's also our closer. She's bringing an extra extra. Also from the history of horse racing. So this is going to be fabulous. Let's do it. Giddy up. Our guest today had 3,700 career wins, making her the leading female thoroughbred horse racing jockey of all time. And now, Colonial Affair with Julie Crone takes command. In 1993, she rode Colonial Affair at the Belmont Stakes. Colonial Affair winning it by two lengths. And became the first woman to win a triple crown race. She was ESPN's Professional Female Athlete of the Year, and she's in, among many Hall of Fames, the National Museum of Horse Racing. All right, let's do it. Let's bring her on, Julie Crone. Hi, Julie Crone. Hello there. Oh, well, this is fantastic. I don't think this you might knew be this the most excited Kate's ever been for an interview. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Julie doesn't know why, but I, you probably get this a lot. But I grew up going to Saratoga. Um, oh, that's so fun. Did yeah. you walk there and stuff, or did you guys drive and do picnic no, tables? We, yeah, we lived in Schenectady, and we lived like 25 minutes away. We would go up one to two times a week when it was in season, and my dad would give me like a $10 betting voucher. At every race, I would put $2 on whatever horse you were riding. Oh, no. And Poor kid, you were broke. <laughs> 
definitely not. I mean, it's gambling, so it usually doesn't end up well for you. But um, and then I would walk to like the paddock area and try to get your autograph. Like every race. Yeah, because you well, this is my question kind of like one were autographs when you were walking to your horse kind of like annoying thing to be doing. And also it seemed like there sometimes there wasn't a pattern. It's part of the whole vibe of Saratoga, right? It's not something you scoff at, although it is, you know, what it is a challenge is that you're a professional athlete. So the only challenge there would be like, let's say you messed up and you're riding a horse and you did something wrong and then the trainer was mad at you. Often you have to like switch on and off kind of like, cause like a fan doesn't necessarily know or something, you know, if you're in a bad mood. So that responsibility being an even keel kind of a person around when you walk through the crowd like that. But I think there's jockeys that got mad or was like, not now or something like that, because everybody yeah. has moods, you know, you're only human beings. <laughs> but most of the time I looked at the kids at Saratoga and it was just a blast. It's really fun. And it adds a whole another dimension to the races where kids are really involved and, you know, the autograph seeking and the jockeys are attainable and, you know, you can walk with them and touch them. And it was really crazy because because I'm small and so the kids would grow up and they'd be getting taller than me every year. And it made me laugh after a while. I'd be like, whoa, you were like this tall last year, you know? So it was like one of those things where I was like watching them grow up. Because you were, you, a lot of the same kids came over and over again, you know? Oh, yeah. It was an adventure. It was like before every race, I would scamper down there and see who I could get. And also when you were walking to the paddock before a race and you have a strategy, I assume that it was a meeting of the minds between you and the trainer, or is it more the trainer has a position he wants you to take? Most of the time what I did, because the actual time that you get to spend in the paddock, I don't think it's conducive to like really having a nice conversation. It was always better to go to the trainer's barn in the morning and in like a nice relaxed way, like, you know, pull out the racing form and be like, oh, what do you think about this race? And what do you think about that? And stuff like that. So that's mostly what I did. So I'd kind of have a plan by the time. And then in the paddock, you would just like go over it. Or maybe oftentimes I'd be like, okay, remember what we said this morning? And I, and then you'd be like, yeah. And you'd be like, forget all that. You're going to do the opposite (laughs) or something like that, you know, but there was an amount of communication that goes on way before you get into paddock because sometimes it's necessary. Was it like you had an agent and people would call your agent and be like, can she ride so-and-so in the third race? And then you'd pick up late rides that were early races that weren't like the big stakes races. So did you just have somebody who handled all that for you and then they'd give you the lowdown? Yeah, jockeys have agents. They used to get paid 25%. Now they get like 30. Of the purse? No, they get 30% of what the jockey makes. And jockeys make like 10% of 60%. So that's kind of how it works out. Okay, so I know you made 900 million purse earnings, 90 million right. purse earnings, but I'm I not going to ask. I got 10% of 60% of that. Okay, I'll do like the math you later. you did the 9 million and then you did 60% <laughs> and then you take 10% of that. Yeah. Okay. And then okay. you pay your agent anywhere between yeah. 25 and 30%. And then the valet gets almost 2.5%. Oh, oh. The valet in the jockey's room that cleans your boots and keeps your equipment safe and is like one of your best friends, like your caretaker kind of in the jockey's room, an important part of it. Now, when I was younger and thinking about what you or and the other jockeys were doing inside the, what do we call that? The locker room? The jockey's room. I don't know if this was coming from like reading Seabiscuit or something, but I thought y'all had to like be sweating it out and losing a pound because it would be, it would get you better on the horse. Like what was happening? Is that true? False? Were you really worried about that? 
Yeah, the horses designed a weight. So, like, if you would have picked up your little program and looked at the jockey's name and then the horse, it would have been like Sea Biscuit, 112 pounds. He doesn't know he's little. He thinks he's the biggest horse out there. Sea Biscuit's jockey comes in and is weighs 113 pounds, but dressed with his clothes on and stuff. So then, you know, the theory would be that he'd have to sweat in the sweat box to get the weight off, kind of like. But most of the time, the jockeys they didn't have problems with their weight. It was the the way that they dieted, there's often binging and purging, terrible choices that they would make about when to eat and what to eat and stuff like that. I think that 90% of the jockeys in the old days like had disorders. You know, there was a terrible approach that they took to their dieting. And now it's a lot different, like totally different atmosphere in the jockey's room as far as that goes. But that is theater and it is sensationalized because it's a movie. There is elements of truth to it, but my personal opinion was that that many jockeys needed to reestablish a relationship with food and their health and being a, a healthy athlete, which now they do. Now I'd say like 75% of the jockeys are health neurotic and never do that. Were you pretty straight? Yeah, I only weighed 100 pounds. Like I never had to die. And there's so you could a funny have a, joke about yeah. Shoemaker. He weighed like 98 pounds. He would eat fudgesicles like the guys would be in the hot box and stuff. And he'd get like a fudge to go and walk around the jocks room with it. They'd be like in the sweat box dying, <laughs> you know, one of the big, and, and she would go in there and like licking his fudge to go or, you know, drinking a big glass of water or something like that, you know, in front of him. So he had fun yeah. with that. I was similar to his body type where I never had to worry about my weight. When you were riding and it was like Jerry Bailey and Angel Cordero and Mike Smith. I think there was one other woman who was riding at the time, but I mean, you were like, yeah, but you were like it. Was gender a thing you thought about a lot or was it something that the whole environment would make you think about a lot? Well, I guess there's always, that's not a straight answer either. There's always going to be like altercations and growth, adversity and stuff like, so like in the beginning there are people that would look at me and say, oh, I'm not going to ride you on this horse just because you're a girl. And so that was always kind of a weird thing to absorb and try to negotiate. You know, it's like, okay. The mere fact that I'm female eliminates me from having a chance to do this. And then other times, like, you know, I would be more inspired, like kind of in spite of, not because of. One example was I had a guy named John Veach, and he trained Ali Dar. He was in New York, and I would go every day to talk to the New York trainers when I was leading rider at the Meadowlands. So I wouldn't have to work in the mornings at the Meadowlands because all my mounts were established. So I would go to New York in the morning and try to establish mounts in New York for the daytime because daytime racing was New York and nighttime racing was the Meadowlands. So I would go to the New York and I'd go out on the apron and John Veach would be there and he would say, Julia, I really like your jokes every day and you're, you're a fine person, but I'll never put you on a horse. I don't ride girl riders on horses and like that. And there was something about that moment when I was kind of like, man, you just painted a bullseye on your head. And so every day I visited him and every day I talked to him and then I had had this sequence of events where I had won big stake races, like grade one stake races on horses that had very, very light weights. So I won a race for Billy Mott, and it was like a three-horse photo, and it was a grade one, and it was the Flower Bowl, and it was a horse called Gailey Gailey. And she was like for the Firestone, so it was very prestigious, and it was really exciting to ride at Belmont and then to win this big stake race. And the reason I won it was because the horse had so much a light weight because the horse was a young horse and she was racing against more established older horses. 
So they're like, oh, she's so young and needs such an advantage. Let's just put 102 pounds on her. So then I borrowed another jockey saddle because I didn't have like a small saddle where I ever rode like that weight that often. So I borrowed one of the small saddles, did 102 pounds easily. Well, like, I think I actually had to not eat dinner or something that night, but it was kind of funny. I had a snack before I rode. The horse won. And then that happened again with another horse for Mac Miller, which was a Roanoke horse. And it was really another situation where this was one of their top mares. You know, she got a grade one placing that increases her value, like tremendous, makes her really valuable. And then, so John Veach was like, I see him on the apron one day and I go, hi, Mr. Veach. You know, I tell him a funny joke. And then uh, he's like, oh, Julie, by the way, have your agent stop by. And inside I wanted to be like, hi, you're going to ride me. And you said you never would, you know, but <laughs> I couldn't do that. So I was like, okay, thank you, Mr. Veach. And, and then I ended up winning a grade one stake for him as well. All right. Um, and that started our relationship, actually. And I ended up winning like two graded stake races. Those were like the two first horses I rode for him, which was crazy. When you're riding a horse, like in the middle of a race, is there always a scary moment? Obviously, there's adrenaline. Was there always, I mean, I know you, you had that epic fall in 93. Trampled and kicked around like a ragdoll. Crone could have been killed. Yeah, that's right. funny you said that because some days would be like really safe and like nothing would happen. And then other days would just be marred with a plethora of just every single thing could go wrong and all day long. And like at the end of those days, you'd be like, oh, my God, I almost died like four times today. So it had its moments, that's for sure. Like where you walk away and you go, Foof, I don't know, this is crazy. But other days were like pretty generic. And it's really weird because when I look at that, I watch races sometimes now. And I'm like, what was I thinking? Like, it seems like really crazy, like with the horses thundering by and it looks like total melee. Nobody looks like they're in control and everything, which is, it's very controlled though, which is, uh, I have a different view of it now than I used to. Like, I just used to be like, eh, you know, it's easy. In 93, when you got hurt at Saratoga, was that a moment when you thought like that whole race, you were like, something's not right? Or was that a split second where? Oh, just a split second for sure. And then you were on the track looking at horses come at you. That does not sound like, that sounds like the stuff of nightmare. There's no ruminating about that. It just, it's over with. Like it's, you even said it slower than it happened. So you're riding one minute and then you're just kind of looking up at the sky the next minute. You know, like sometimes people are like, oh, it's like slow motion and all that. And like, I never have done that. I've just been like, chaos. What the heck? Like, I never absorbed it like that. I mostly was like, whoa, if that happens fast. Do you, when people introduce you as like the first woman to win a triple crown race, the Belmont, do you vibe with that? Or is there another sort of career milestone that, that you reach that you feel like is more in line with your career? Or is that win the thing? I think the honor of being in three and four Hall of Fames is kind of a big deal. So I like it when I'm introduced as a Hall of Famer. I'm in the National Women's Hall of Fame. I'm in the Cowgirl Hall of Fame. And I'm in the National Racing Hall of Fame. I'm in the Michigan Women's Hall of Fame. I think there's another one. And you have a statue. Oh, oh, I know what it is. Australian Female Jockey Hall of Fame. Wow. Okay. So I think the moment that I was at the National Women's Hall of Fame and I walk into the actual Hall of Fame and I see my plaque between Babe Dietrichson and Billie Jean King mm. and I found myself on my knees weeping. And like I, it hit me as a 
human, you know, not just as a jockey, of the trailblazing and the, the special journey that I had as a female jockey and the um, success that I had. And I think I also realized is that I did that for a long time. Like, you know what I mean? I wasn't just like, I didn't do that for like two years or something, you know, to be honored like that forever. Also, my daughter was there, like to share that with my daughter. That was just insane. And actually this year on Derby Day, they're inducting my statue. I have a, a statue and at the National Women's Hall of Fame in New York. The statue has actually been there, but it didn't get a proper introduction because of the COVID stuff. How do you feel about the statue? You know, it's hard to get a good rendering on uh, bronze. <laughs> no, you it's like actually it? beautiful. It's perfect. Okay. It's mind-blowing. People are just so impressed by it. It's a, There's one in Saratoga. And then there's going to be one in the Cowgirl Hall of Fame as well. Okay. I'll go to the Saratoga. I'll be one. in Saratoga next month. Yes. Yeah. All right. Before we let you go, what's the best horse racing movie in your opinion? Stripes. Oh. Racing Stripes. Now we have to watch that one, Kate. It's magnificent. It's one of the best horse movies ever made. I don't even know. It doesn't even have to make. Got mainly a zebra in it, but there's horses. Racetrack is no place for a zebra. I'll race you anytime you want. It's flipping <laughs> awesome. It is so good. I'm like, so happy you guys haven't seen it yet, right? No, definitely not. Nah, I've you're seen. Be laughing so hard. I didn't even see the Sandlot until this morning. Yeah, did have you? Did you ever see the movie Sandlot? Baseball uh, movie. Yeah, I'm sixty. <laughs> I'm sixty, you guys. That's my movie, all right. <laughs> okay, on your way out of here, will you tell us like what your before a big, big race, like a triple crown race, the ones you, you raced in, like what was your pre-race routine? I tried to just stay my same routine. I like to work my horses in the morning. I like to get to the jockey's room, eat, take a nap, look at my races on the racing forum, listen to some music, maybe work Ooh, what a puzzle a little bit. It would depend on, I'm a real big music buff. So it was like, if I saw showed the theater, I might play that theater music the next morning. And I've seen every play that exists, so like any of those. What's your favorite? What's your top three? Give us like a top three. Um, there was a moment when Phantom of the Opera was my everything. In sleep he sang to me. Oh, yes. What a classic. Then my daughter and I got to see Hamilton. And then we saw Anastasia. Heart don't fail me now. We had front row tickets. Desert me, don't turn back. Down another rabbit hole we are, Jess. That's my Yoda voice. Exactly. I kind of had to bring us down here right now because my little. 12-year-old mind is blown by the fact that Julie Crone got hyped before big races by basically listening to Phantom of the Opera. Um, um, so relatable for me because okay, that is, is what I listen to when I run sometimes. Not just Phantom, but a ton of musical numbers because I just feel like they're so upbeat a lot of the time, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't quite relate to listening to show tunes as warm-up music. I have so much respect for you, mm. Jess. So I don't want to say that it makes no sense to me, but it makes like, I need to be convinced why this is a good idea. Well, I feel like it's self-explanatory. If you're in a, the moment in a musical where a, an actor, a scene or a moment that's it, crescendoing, mm. a lot of those songs can like really like make your heart rate start beating fast, 
get you really excited. Like you kind of get, when you watch something on Broadway or, or any, you know, stage and you feel like that momentum in a song, in a number, and then you play it back, you kind of feel like you're back in it. Like show tunes, you're making faces at me that I don't quite appreciate, but I feel oh, like- no, um, they're good. No, I don't know about that. I think show tunes have a way of, of transporting you to another place, especially oh, if we're doing like an ensemble cast or like a reprise. Mm. Oh, some of those, they just get me. I'm sprinting. I'm running a sub eight minute mile. I'm going as fast as I can. Sub eight. And sub eight. That's never happened to me probably since like high school. But let's pretend it has. I know all the words or I'm like thinking about the words. So it takes my mind off of the physical activity too. Okay. So it's almost like you are back watching the play, which is better than being in the pain of whatever cardio you sure. run you are in. Yeah. Okay. The reason I've always shied away from show tunes as warm-up music is I don't think of Broadway as a competitive environment. And I'm not saying actors aren't competitive for roles, but I don't think of a play as edgy from a competitive, like, go get them mm. point of view. It's not about the money, money, money. We don't need your money, money, money. Which is why I've never thought of show tunes as something that I want on a warm-up tape. Well, but like, what about the characters in the show tune? Like, their motivation becomes your motivation, right? Like, Phantom, for example. Your face away. If you're the creepy little Phantom guy, like, you want something really bad, so your songs are all, like, really intense. And, and if you're someone who's getting ready to work out or is working out, like, you can become the Phantom, and then you're really intense. Okay, let's do this. What is your what is your most recommended show tune album that would pull be up, best? Let me pull up my show tunes. Playlist. To prove to me that this is a good idea, that I should do this while I'm to working be honest, out or yeah. before. No, it, I think mine changes a lot. Like, I've been on a real Chicago kick lately. Come on, babe, why don't we paint the town? Mm. I'm not sure why. Those songs, and all that jazz, probably I'm not the most intense for a workout, but they do make me want to dance. Like, I want to do a little razzle-dazzle okay. here and there. Yes, I can see yeah. that. And I really like, I mean, Les Mis isn't always for me. That, again, with the ensemble cast, at the end of the day, you're just like, wow, these people, they hate sewing and they're hungry. And I'm hungry to finish right. this 10 and a half minute Makes mile. sense. Yeah, exactly. Julie Crone said this and you were like, spot on. Yes. Girl after my own heart. Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. Jesus Christ Superstar also. Oh, okay. Just Jesus Christ for Superstar. The All of wow. Judas's songs. They slap. All right, let's go back up. So then I would also do my folk singers I like. I like Kingston Trio and John Stewart. John Stewart, the singer. He was the one that sung the original, like, Cheer up, sleepy jean. Cheer up, sleepy jean. Oh, what does it mean to a daydream believer? That's his song. And then I also liked the classic, like, I like Bruce. And a little bit of Iron Maiden sometimes even. Like, Ooh. I'm just like, I love music. And then I would have my, you know, maybe if it's the holidays, I'm doing like uh, Four Seasons or something, you know? There, remember that beautiful orchestra yeah. stuff they had? So like, I'm endless with music and just every Did you have like a cassette, like a portable cassette player? Or like a yeah, disc Yeah, I, I went through all those things and I'd yes. make my own music. Yeah, yeah. Don't ask awesome. me about music. I'll be all over Yeah, that. no, yeah, that'll be a whole other podcast. Well, Julie Crone, thank you for joining us. This is fantastic. 
pleasure. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. A hundred and forty-nine years. That's how long the Kentucky Derby has been held. And in that long stretch where countless exquisite horses have raced around Churchill Downs racetrack. Only six women have ridden around that track with the hopes and dreams of winning the most prestigious horse race. And this year, when 20 of the world's most elite horses stand in their starting stalls, ready to burst around the two-kilometer track, they're up in the Kentucky Derby. There will be no female jockeys to add to that list. In order for any change to take place, though, there always needs to be a first. This is where the story of Diane Crump comes in, who holds the reins as the first woman to race in the Kentucky Derby in 1970. But before she became a world-class jockey, Diane's love story with horses began when she was a little girl in Milford, Connecticut. When I was four years old, my parents took me to a carnival with a pony ride, and I was automatically fell in love with it. It was instantaneous. I mean, I was consumed by it. I read every book that ever came out about a horse. Every school paper I ever had, I drew horses' heads on them. I never had a doll, I had horse figurines. After starting off on a pony, Diane went on to win 235 races in her jockey career. The real genesis of how horses began to shape her life, though, started when she was 12 years old when her family moved from Connecticut to Florida. There were no horses where I lived, but my parents, their promise to me was one day we were going to move to Florida, and if I could save the money, I could buy a horse. So when I was eight years old, I started delivering papers and doing odd jobs. So by the time I was 12, when we got ready to leave Florida, I had saved $150. <laughs> and I was like... When can I get my horse? When can I get my horse? <laughs> We'd start looking in the paper for a horse. There was an ad for one. So my parents took me out to see it and it cost $150. That's exactly how much I had. On her new horse, who she named Buckshot, she began to teach herself to ride. I learned how to ride a little bit better because I had to figure it out myself. <laughs> And the more I did it, the more I loved it and the more consumed I got by it. And I think 
that just being able to do it and the challenge of it made it even more exciting because it's a challenge and it was for me i was totally self-taught but i loved it i wish i could share every detail of diane's story like how she rode horses everywhere in florida alongside the beaches and through the orange groves how she started a riding club at her school and how someone from her riding club got her a job at a stable to work with thoroughbred horses. There's also the time when she stumbled across a racetrack while riding with a friend one day, and how she found a way to sneak onto that track with her horse and practice riding around it, or how she got a license at 16 years old to train horses. Each of these moments led to her realizing her dream to become a jockey. I didn't know how that was going to happen. I didn't know, but somehow it was going to happen. There was one major obstacle, though, that was in her way of fulfilling her dream. Women were barred from getting their jockey license. That was until U.S. Olympic equestrian Kathy Kuzner sued the Maryland Racing Commission in 1968, citing the gender clause in the Civil Rights Act. Little by little, the women started making a little noise about getting their license. And Kathy Kusner, she took it to court and she won the right to ride. So she was able to get her license. Wasting no time, Diane got her license. And on February 7, 1969, she became the first female jockey to ride in the paramutual race at Halea Park in Florida. They didn't even know where to weigh me. Somebody brought a bathroom scale to weigh me on. There were also security concerns for Diane, as many men had expressed anger and dismay that a woman was racing. And just a year prior, Penny Ann Early had been granted a jockey's license, but was denied three times from racing at Halea Park after male jockeys boycotted the race. Everybody was just pressing around and they were afraid that you know, somebody would try to stop me. So I had an armed guard that escorted me into the paddock. And from there, I got my orders and got my leg up and went onto the track, got to ride my first race. Diane told the New York Times that those who resented the ban being lifted on female jockeys made her want to compete even more. That's what happens when you're told you can't, she said. So she kept racing, and she ended up making history at the most famed horse race of them all, the Kentucky Derby. The man that owned the horse that I rode in the Derby, Fathom, he thought I was a really good rider. I mean, he thought that I was as good as anybody. And so that year, I won 33 races for him. And it's not much for a jockey, but it's a lot for an owner. If you own racehorses in Kentucky, your dream is the Kentucky Derby. That was his dream. And so Mr. Brown came to me later and he said, Diane, would you ride Fathom in the Derby? For Diane, there was no hesitation on her end. I mean, why wouldn't I? It's a long shot, but of course. I think every rider's dream is to ride in the Derby. When Diane got to the race, there was an excitement in the air that filled the racetrack. They play my old Kentucky home, you know, as you come out onto the track. I mean, there's a feeling there that it's really hard to describe because it's just so amazing just to be a part of that. Just the feeling that you get, knowing how special it is. 
you know, what it meant to everybody. And so I think just that is an amazing feeling right there, just to be a part of it. All standing well as we wait for the start. So, I mean, for me, I'm focusing on the race. I'm focusing on what's going to happen, how it's going to play out, but also feeling an excitement that isn't in a normal race. They're at the post. I think even Fathom knew that. And they're off. Rancho Leos breaks for the lead on the inside. Fathom gave also it his best. He started gaining ground, and Diane, for a moment, thought they might win. You can feel it when they're going to win. You know what I mean? You can feel the power. But just the fact that he was trying that hard was a really good feeling. Despite Fathom's best efforts, they placed 15th out of the 17 horses who took to the track that day. However, Diane looks back at that moment as one of her greatest achievements. It was an accomplishment that I rode a good race. You know, that it's tough. You know, you go into that first turn and you have 20 horses all crowded around, that you're staying in the right place, that you're saving ground, that you're not causing any trouble, that I knew where I was at all times. I was great in the traffic. I think all of those things gave me a sense of accomplishment that here I am with the greatest riders in the country and I can hold my own. Yes, Diane went on to win numerous races after the Kentucky Derby, but having the spotlight on her at the most important race of the year helped shift perceptions that people had of women not being able to race as well as the men. I think seeing you get in a tough situation, seeing that girls, we weren't going to get flustered. Nothing was going to shake us up. Nothing was going to scare us. Nothing that we could give it our all, that we rode hard. And that as hard as each of us tried, I think little by little, they started seeing that, that you're going to get a really good, hard ride and an honest ride. And obviously that's part of what broke through was just the fact that we're going to give it our best no matter what. And Diane never gave up. She was driven by proving that she was just as capable on the track. But more than anything, it was her love for racing and horses that never allowed anyone to deter her from following her dreams. And I followed that desire for all of my life, and I continue to do that. I was always willing to do my part, no matter what it was. I never imagined as a kid that I'd be the first woman jockey in the United States. I never dreamed that I'd be the first woman to ride in the Kentucky Derby or do the things that I did. Your dream is what you love. If you follow that dream and you don't let anything dissuade you from that, that you will accomplish more than you could have ever imagined. Well, thank you to Anya for that beautiful story, Diane Crump, telling us all about her love of horses. Just, you and I actually haven't talked about you and horses, as in, Mm. have you ever ridden a horse? I think I have ridden 
a horse once or twice, actually not far from where you live in South Carolina. It was, it was okay. You think you have, like, were you so young you don't remember? I think I did it once when I was young and then once when I was like 20. Okay. But that was a long time ago now, Kate. As you know, yeah. I recently celebrated yeah. a birthday. You did. <laughs> and it was a big one. It was a big one. No, it wasn't. Let me tell you, the, the big two nine. Not a very pretty number, apparently. I hate it, aesthetically. I've ridden horses twice in the last year. And it's really? the first two times I've ever been on a horse. Okay. And both times I did Western saddle. Just want to let you know, not... Not English. I have Western. no idea There's what that means. Can you? Yeah. Can I at least also say like most of my horse knowledge comes from watching the Lord of the Rings bonus features? Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. I'll let you know that the Western saddle, the reason I did the Western saddle, obviously, was because I wanted to mimic Kevin Costner in Yellowstone. Saddle another one. Today you learn to ride. <laughs> Obviously, the way he sort of holds his hands, super loose. I'm really into that vibe, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. like a, I'm so nonchalant on this horse, I don't even have to pay attention to the reins, was the vibe I'm going for. How did it go, though? Every time I tried to get the Yellowstone vibe, like the super I'm chill, the woman teaching us was like, hold your reins don't right. Don't do that, you idiot. Yeah, okay, yes. got it, yeah. got it. And then at one point, I was like, you know what? I'm going to try to trot, being one step up from the walk. So I had to kick the horse, you know, like the little nudge. And then it went faster. And then I immediately had to stop because hmm. it was just, it was too fast. Much too fast. That sounds very scary. Yeah, it was. It was scary. So I'm into horses, not just watching them at Saratoga and putting money on Julie Crone and being so enamored with Diane Crump stories. I am now almost kind of a horse connoisseur as well. I called this at the beginning of this episode. I said, you're kind of a horse yeah. girl and yeah, you, you totally did. downplayed it. And now you're just admitting to it. So yeah, what? that's true. Just embrace it, Kate. Let's go ride horses yeah, next horse time. Person. Next time we see each other in, in Charleston. Yeah, as long as you do Western saddle and you try to get the Yellowstone vibe. That's what if we're I can for. wear the headpiece that the of Rohirrim course. wear in Lord of the Rings, I am so. Oh down. no, you can no? wear a cowboy hat. No cowboy hat. No helmet yes. with a ponytail. Well, how are you going to do the look? Which is when you grab the front of your hat. And you kind of bow your head, Brad Pitt. I'll, I'll, no, style? I'll send you some clips from the two towers. You'll know exactly okay. what I'm talking about. I got this. Okay, fine. Well, let's tell people who made this Kentucky Derby horse-themed episode. Well, we should definitely thank Anya because not only is she trying to qualify for the U.S. Open, she's also now giving us long-form stories. So thank she's you. Basically, carrying off the horse, <laughs> literally on her back like a golf bag. So thank you to Anya, the producer of the show. Thank you also to you for co-hosting and producing and to Carl Scott for executive producing and also to Joel Shupak for the beautiful sound design of Off the Looking Glass. And of course, our guests, Julie Crone, oh, your fave, and Diane, Crump. and Diane Crump. What an episode. <laughs> that was a good one. <laughs> Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com.
Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.